Two years ago, my partner and I were living in Augusta, Georgia, a stone's throw from the master's golf course. Neither of us had expected to be living there, but teaching in higher education means sometimes we have to go where the jobs are. For a number of years, we spent our time in front of various literature classes, working on updating and remodeling our first home, and becoming grown-ups. Trying to, at least. Then, when the pandemic shut the world down, we found ourselves stuck in a mid-sized southern town where we had no roots, stuck in teaching positions that, because of new lockdowns, were ever-changing and dissolving, and stuck in a sprawling ranch house that was not only half under construction, but haunted. While I'm not the world's biggest skeptic, nor am I the truest of believers, there were some experiences I simply couldn't explain. My partner, to this day, swears with every fiber of her being that we weren't alone. Her feelings and experiences became the basis for the first story on The Ghost Modernist. Deep into quarantine and isolation, I first went a little feral, spending a solid amount of my time at the backyard bar I had built, or burning anything that wasn't nailed down in our makeshift fire pit. I'm pretty sure that at some point my lady found me trying to form a cult with our two Labradors. Hence, I needed something to focus on. We had dabbled in the world of podcasts before, exploring all manner of horror topics in a handful of episodes that are still floating out there in the ether somewhere, so I still had the microphones and other equipment we had cobbled together. I started writing, a chapter a week, mirroring some of the experiences that we'd had in the house, and then the story began to go in its own direction. It was a great escape for me, and surprisingly, some of you began listening. I started receiving comments and feedback, both positive and negative, and it kept me motivated. I had a blast writing that story and figuring out how to record it. I'm thankful that so many folks came along for the ride. As I approached the end of that story, I knew I wanted to write another, and I was ready to. However, while writing and recording each week, we had also made the decision to finish the house updates and put it on the market. We wanted to go somewhere else, somewhere for us, and not for the job. We got an offer on the house, and we moved out the same week I published the final chapter. The problem was, we didn't know exactly where we wanted to go. We put everything in storage, loaded up my Jeep with suitcases and those Labradors, and we drove west. We spent the winter in northern New Mexico, hoping for either a sign from the universe as to where we should go next, or a UFO encounter. Either would have been great, but neither came. Instead, we headed to my partner's Midwestern homeland and spent about six months being close to family, remodeling a new house, and working part-time at a nearby dive bar, an experience that, I hope, will eventually become the basis for another story on this podcast. Thing was, Wisconsin wasn't it either. So, we accepted teaching positions out of the country and spent last fall in Costa Rica. We fell in love with it there, and with the people, and we were fully ready to make that our new home. But getting our entire lives and those same lovable Labradors down there just wasn't feasible. And it's still not. Not right now, at least. So we found ourselves one year later, after driving aimlessly away from our life in Georgia, again without a destination. A weekend visit to the city of Pittsburgh was our dart thrown at the map. Everything was packed up once again, shipped in the middle of winter to Pennsylvania, and now here we are, a month into 2022, and I've got time to write and record again. We chose a house that faces a cemetery, and while I record this, I'm staring out at the snow-covered gravestones, thinking about warmer climates. I've always wanted to write something about the ocean, and more specifically about a cruise ship. I know this is very well-tread territory, 
But for me, there's still something about the vastness and isolation of the ocean that makes for a good horror tale. Like the last book, I don't have a solid plot in mind, nor even the faintest idea of an ending. Just some character sketches. I'll be looking to Instagram, at the Ghost Modernist for your comments and feedback, and discovering where you want the story to go. So what do you think? Are you ready to steer the ship with me? Part 1. Embarkation. Chapter 1. The Baroness shimmered in the bay. Little bits of sun, escaping the cloud cover, bounced and refracted from every inch of her, a glittering ball gown rising from the greenish water that both lured and intimidated the long line of masked passengers waiting to come aboard. The embarkation system shuffled the soon-to-be cruisers through gold stanchions, and maroon velvet ropes that twisted and turned in no discernible pattern, much like hurried attempts to corral the deluge of passengers at major airports when weather forced the cancellation of flights. But rather than those hideous, soul-stealing arrival and departure screens, the long maze was bordered by floor-to-ceiling windows that stretched the length of the rectangular Port Authority terminal. Through the right bank of windows, the mighty bulk of the Baroness waited, while the left provided an astonishing panorama of the crescent moon-shaped inlet of Mexico's Costa Verde Bay, as well as the handful of other cruise liners waiting to be boarded. But those vessels appeared dull, faded, almost lower class compared to the Baroness, which the cruisers would be calling home for the next 17 days. "'You hear that?' Austin asked. His left hand clutched the handle of the hot pink rollerboard suitcase, so he'd always be able to pick it out on a conveyor belt that he was towing behind him, while his right hand kept pressure on the small of his wife's back, nudging her forward with the movement of the line. What? Marie asked. I can barely hear myself think in here. The room was buzzing with erratic sound. Over the faint din of Caribbean-style steel drum music being piped through the row of hanging speakers near the top of the massive windows, scattered conversations seemed to swell and coalesce into a solid cacophonous whirr. Most of the nearby talk was filled with excitement, about the ship, the itinerary, the various ports of call they would find themselves in, what they would drink, what they would buy, what souvenirs would go to which friend or relative. Behind them, a woman who Austin judged was overjoyed to begin her golden years, had been listing out what souvenirs each grandchild would like for a good ten minutes. Her husband, hidden behind mirrored sunglasses and a khaki, wide-brimmed fishing cap, merely grunted as the list rolled on. At one point, when Austin turned back, he could have sworn he made eye contact with the old man through the sunglasses and knew those eyes were pleading for reprieve. In front of Austin and Marie, a trio of college-aged women cackled on and on about the best ways to tan, one insisting that any type of lotion would prevent an even tan, while another swore by just covering herself in oil. Beneath the light cloth they wore over bikinis, Austin could see the bronze skin of their upper thighs and caught himself thinking that both of their methods seemed to be working just fine. More than once, he had to force himself to look away. The most recent time, he focused his attention on the Baroness. Not that Marie would have minded too much. Women do catch their partners ogling, but still, he wanted her to know that this trip was about her and her alone. 
Austin pulled down his flimsy paper mask and asked his wife, What don't you hear? Marie couldn't handle the barrage of sound any more than one single source of music or conversation caused her to shut down and tune everything out. At home, while Austin was perfectly content having multiple inputs, televisions and kitchen appliances and old punk records playing and converging into that blessed salvation from silence, Marie was the opposite. Sometimes Austin would just take off for a few hours to a coffee shop or a record store, letting Marie enjoy the dull thrum of his absence. It wasn't that she needed space from him, per se, but rather from his need to drown out whatever thoughts threatened to surface. And Austin didn't blame her. He was a lot to handle, and always had been. I hear nothing, Marie said, and everything. Crying. Marie turned to look at him then. Who's crying? No one, Austin told her, the air of excitement palpable in his voice. That's the point. You've lost me, Marie said, looking at him now. The line was stopped for the moment. Do you see any kids in here? When he'd pitched the idea of this cruise to her, he played up the fact that this particular voyage was an adults-only itinerary. At first, she was hesitant, saying that they'd tried the swinger thing before, after college and before the kids had come along. They'd made it to just be on the pairing-off process. A blonde in a short black dress selected Austin's middle-of-the-road silver watch from the bowl, one that didn't drain their suburban bank account, but without close scrutiny, appeared to. Marie blindly picked up the golden millstone of a timepiece that belonged to the loudest, drunkest, and of course, the richest man in the room, Charles Delacourt. He was a hedge fund manager who spent most of his time in New York, but at a hunting lodge outside of Austin and Marie's town, Saxon Point, Wisconsin. He was the sort of man who blew into town, impressed everyone with his cars and clothes, racked up large tabs at local dives, and wore gold-rimmed aviator glasses that were more fashion than function. Either way, he'd had them on while the couples paired off. Austin had felt the pang of jealousy, his modest salary as a community college lecturer paling in comparison, but he allowed the blonde to lead him out of the living room, shooting one last glance at the room Marie had entered. Once behind the closed doors of their respective swinging rooms, Charles stared at Marie while he shoved off his slacks and chili-peppered printed boxers, letting the clothes bunch around his polished Italian loafers. He had obviously done this before, and was ready to skip the pleasantries. Within a minute of entering the room, he was nude save for a pair of loud leopard print socks and those gold glasses. Marie turned right around and found Austin in the hallway closing the door to his room at the same time. Whatever restlessness they'd been feeling about their young marriage, whatever might have been missing and caused them to consider swinging in the first place, faded amidst their laughing on the way home, with Marie divulging that Mr. Delacourt's manhood resembled some sort of charred piece of firewood, and it had disappeared completely after a stop at Burger King. Austin Jr. came along ten months later, and, as if the cosmos knew how difficult it would be going forward, Roxanne was born the following year, on the very same day. That was 18 years ago, but Austin still thought about Mr. Delacourt from time to time. He was mostly sure that nothing had happened between her and the richer man, but still the image reared up when they were fighting, or in their sex life hit a slow patch. The times after her pregnancies brought particularly vivid images of Marie doing things with Delacourt that she'd never even whispered about to Austin. But Austin never said anything. He didn't have a right to, after all. They knew what they'd gotten into going to that party. And again, it was 18 years ago, and they'd been happy, more or less, ever since. 
Now here they were, about to board Celebration Vacation's flagship, the Baroness of the Open Waters, taking a one-off repositioning journey from Cancun to Venice, dubbed Love on the Waves. The description in the email brochure told him this was an escape for couples celebrating anniversaries, a rocking honeymoon, a simple getaway with an old lover, or the perfect place to meet a new one. Austin had been chosen. The email said that he and Marie were selected at random from the millions of past cruisers who'd sailed with Celebration Vacations. They'd taken a four-day cruise out of Cape Canaveral the summer before the kids started high school, and they were to receive a severely discounted rate on one of their upper-floor suites. This was the big leagues. They'd flown from Milwaukee, stopped over in Houston, and arrived in Cancun. From there, they took a two-hour air-conditioned bus ride along the Mexican coastline to Costa Verde, the prefab resort and port of call constructed, maintained, and guarded by the Celebration Vacations Company. The private balcony on the Baroness enticed him, as well as the notion that he'd feel like a rich man, like Mr. Delacourt, near the top of an ivory tower. But even more so, he relished the idea of swimming in one of the Baroness's three pools without a turd or a diaper floating nearby or having breakfast without the piercing sounds of children banging silverware against their high chairs and the foreheads of their siblings. God, you're right, Marie said. I'd forgotten all about that. No kids. It's actually really nice. She leaned into Austin, who responded by shifting his hand from her back to her hip, which he gave a squeeze. The line shuffled forward then, whatever logjam having been cleared, and they were nearing the security checkpoint. They were, Austin judged, roughly 50 or 60 masked people away. There were occasional muffled coughs, groans, or the irritated foot tap. I wonder if it'll be weird, Marie said, like one of those movies where something is just kind of off. You can't put your finger on it, but something. What? Austin asked. The cruise. Will it be super awkward without any children? Like, too quiet. The insects stop buzzing or the wind stops blowing. The day the cruise stood still. It's going to be peaceful, Austin said, smiling. I guess I just never realized how much... Murray's voice faded out as Austin felt his attention drawn to the conversation of two middle-aged women on the next aisle of the snaking line. That's why these tickets were so cheap. He watched them as they moved along, reaching the curve of their lane while he and Murray rounded theirs. As they got closer, Austin listened again. Went door to door on the rooms in the lower decks, one of the women said. I heard they got to nearly everyone on those levels before anyone else knew what was happening. The woman who'd been listing out her souvenirs and recipients behind them cleared her throat, and Austin saw that Marie had moved up about six feet while he'd been focused on the snaking line behind him. He hurried to join her. There'd only be one more pass before the end. I just can't believe they got the ship ready so soon after was all he could make out before the women's voices were swallowed up by the rhythmic chant of what he could only assume were frat boys at the rear of the line. Beer, babes, brunch. Beer, babes, brunch. Beer, babes, brunch. Austin only had a few seconds to ponder this peculiar mix of desires and picture the scene they conjured. Makeshift tubes and funnels jutting up from chapped, sunburned lips, whose owners were guzzling down whatever the scantily clad babes in corona bikinis were pouring, while behind them, a table was set with glass pitchers of mimosas, full sets of silver flatware and various scones, quiches, and opaque, bulbous eggs yearning for hollandaise. Before Marie tugged his arm, pulling him forward, she said, Come on, we're next. They were forced to separate to different, uniformed personnel. 
Marie getting a dark-skinned Enrique Iglesias look-alike, who probably spent the majority of his free time surfing when he wasn't working here, while Austin stood before a squat, grimacing woman who reminded him of his high school lunch lady. Without making eye contact, the woman said, Vaccine card? Not, do you have a vaccination card? Or, may I see your vaccination card? Even, are you vaccinated? Austin slid the wrinkled, worn slip of paper from the folds of his passport and handed it over, noting once again how easily the scribbled dates and doctor's signatures could be forged. She asked him if he was bringing any fruits, vegetables, illegal alcohol, or prescription medications in his suitcase. Just my blood pressure meds and a few bottles of aspirin. You never know how many I'll need with all those daiquiris in my future. The joke fell flat between them and shivered on the tiled floor. If you're lying, we'll find the contraband when we inspect your luggage. Contraband, Austin thought. Nope, nothing to worry about, he said, looking at her name tag and adding, Doris. Keep your mask over your mouth and nose until you get to the testing area. She handed back his passport along with a stamped ticket, urging him along to the welcoming party, and repeated an automated phrase of well wishes that sounded like it belonged to a call center phone tree rather than paradise. From there, Austin rejoined Marie. Their lines converged before smiling crew's employees standing akimbo in pairs. They wore the company uniform, a loud pastel blue and yellow combination with descending rows of shiny gold buttons dotting the chest and stomach, a style similar to a Manhattan bellhop in the 50s. Marie reached the pair at the head of our line, and the smiles beneath their masks grew wider. They stared at Austin's wife a bit more than he would have liked, but he was used to this. Marie was beautiful. Not in that exotic way, but rather she had the Midwestern milkmaid sort of image, wholesome and thoroughly all-American. Short and blonde, Marie boasted a figure that held up remarkably well after the kids had come along. She said it was yoga, and Austin never found a reason to argue. Not that Austin was a hideous leper, but even though they'd been married for close to 20 years, he couldn't help feel that someday Marie would wake up and realize she'd been dabbling in the wrong weight class the whole time. That she needed to be with a rich, naturally handsome man who owned multiple homes and more than one pair of animal print speedos. Their brief foray into the world of swinging was, Austin knew now, his attempt to drive her away before she could leave him for someone better. Instead, it seemed to have just brought them closer together. Is this your first time cruising with us? The first man asked. His name tag, matching gold with thick black lettering, stated, Sandoval, R, Honduras. Austin said, Nope, we're a couple of salty old sailors. Both men shifted their gaze to him. Sandoval's partner, Fela, Nigeria, said, How wonderful to have both of you with us again. Would you like for us to take your carry-ons to your cabin to be stowed with the rest of your luggage? This way, once you get through the sickness check, you may explore the ship at your leisure, both hands free to indulge with what the Baroness has to offer. Nodding, Austin allowed Fela to take his rolling bag. Murray quickly rummaged through her oversized purse, grabbing her thin wallet and sunglasses, which she stuck on top of her head then handed the bag to Sandoval. What is your cabin number? he asked. His whole life, Austin had been paranoid about revealing personal information, never telling people all of the details of his life except to his closest friends, or preventing anyone from posting online from various vacation destinations so as to not alert possible burglars to the vacancy of their home. Just don't give people the opportunity, he'd always thought. And his first impulse was to tell the employee the wrong room number. Before he had a chance to say anything, Murray was speaking. 217, she told them. 
Their grins grew wider, and Fila said, Ah, one of our finest staterooms, a true beauty, with views of both the sea and our sprawling Lido deck. You'll be very happy within the confines of your cabin. Austin thought, confines? While the employee scribbled something onto the notepad he was holding, Marie didn't seem to notice, because she was already moving between the men. When he finished writing, Fila said, Please follow the hall to your left for embarkation. Happy cruising, Mr. and Mrs. Holt. On their way up the slight incline to the left, another uniformed employee, a woman, slipped a plastic coconut necklace over he and Marie's necks. He wondered whether he'd told the welcoming party their last name. Austin didn't think so. Whatever, they were paid to know these things. Even if he had given them a fake room number, all the correct information was on the manifest somewhere. They were on the list. Marie led the way, pointing to the other corridor, and the trail of Hawaiian-shirted and sun-hatted tourists lined up to get their photos professionally taken in front of a large, full-color backdrop of the Baroness. He and Marie had done the same on their first cruise, standing in front of the rendering of the Maiden, and just like he had then, Austin wondered why people wouldn't just go outside and take a photo of themselves in front of the real ship. Better lighting and angles when he faked it, Austin guessed. The couple came to another pair of individual lines. Employees directed Austin to one and Marie to another. Part of the informational email sent out a few weeks before departure, Celebration Vacations boasted this would be a mask-free adventure. All passengers would be rapidly tested before boarding, and with a negative result and vaccination card in hand, allowed to roam the ship without mask, save for events and activities which required people to be in very close proximity. Those with a positive result would be turned away, but guaranteed a spot on a future cruise. Further, passengers would wake up to in-cabin tests each morning that needed to be completed and verified before leaving the stateroom. Masks and virus were a part of life now, but this seemed to be the best of a bad situation. Austin watched Marie disappear into her testing room before being ushered into his own. His nose swab was administered by a large, bald man who looked more like an asylum orderly than a steward of fun on an adults-only cruise, and it was conducted with all the grace of a sledgehammer. In a tired, gravel-choked voice, the man said, Wait in the next room. Stay six feet apart. Refreshments are available. Through watering eyes, Austin found an empty seat in a large conference room. Other passengers came and went, all with red eyes and sniffles. He sipped a virgin pina colada from a paper cup and checked emails on his phone. He was avoiding eye contact with everyone, as doing so might have welcomed small talk. Instead, he tuned in and out of various other forced conversations, like he was scanning through AM radio stations. A pair of men Austin's age were sharing deep-sea fishing stories across the room, with details and adjectives that were best reserved for tales of overseas combat, and aquatic measurements of their prizes that felt more like physical compensation than reality. Another conversation featured two bearded gentlemen who had never met but were becoming fast friends or enemies, depending on the listener perception, based on how each would not only coach the Green Bay Packers, but how to best improve the ground game and deploy the rookie running back out of Texas A&M. It wasn't until zeroing in on his third conversation, a duo of baritones behind his seat, that Austin Holt realized two things. One, men's conversations on a whole could be boiled down to simple competition. Who is better, faster, bigger? Austin hoped he, being a college lecturer, was different, but deep down, he knew he wasn't. The other realization was also about men, but not their conversational habits. No, this was about their numbers in the room. Not a single woman was present. Had the employees done this on purpose, separating the genders into different waiting rooms like some sort of middle school dance, 
or was it just a coincidence? One of the baritones cleared his throat, getting louder with each word. I don't care where it is. Hotel room, stateroom, two-person tent in the middle of nowhere. If I'm sleeping in it, that's my home, and I'm going to defend it. Too bad they won't let me bring my Glock on board, the other man said. Austin couldn't see them, but he had already created an image in his head. Scraggly beards, beer bellies, tropical button-down shirts that, despite their silken material and patterns, still somehow resembled flannel draped over their large bodies. They're lucky I wasn't on that first cruise. One baritone said, They come in my room, I'm throwing them overboard. Drug addicts, terrorists, liberals, I don't care. Come one, come all, said the other. They both gave an awkward yet hearty laugh, and though they were agreeing with each other, it still felt like a competition. Who would be able to defend themselves, their family, their way of life better than the other? And Austin, being the stereotypical academic like he was, wanted to turn around and chime in, to disagree for the sake of disagreeing, but also to gauge whether either of those men knew more information about what really happened on the Baroness's maiden voyage. But his gentle giant of a test administrator had appeared near the rear door and was calling Austin's name. He hurried over without looking at the tough guy sitting behind him. Negative. When he joined Marie on the other side, she said, The brain poke wasn't that bad. Or maybe I'm just getting used to him. How was yours? I think he was trying to lobotomize me. Austin was about to ask Marie if her side was all women, or if she'd even noticed the gender split, but they were already being ushered toward the ship. The passageway ahead of them led to a metal walkway that connected the solid tile floor of land to the soon-to-be freedom of the floating city they would be visiting. Their shoes scraped and clanged on the steel planks, and looking down, Austin could see through the grates into the green, brackish water. What looked like cigarette butts and scraps of paper floated on the surface, and Austin wondered how many important items had been lost while cruisers crossed the threshold, leaving solid ground for constant sway. Welcome aboard! Welcome aboard! Welcome aboard! A squadron of pastel employees greeted them as they stepped onto the Baroness, and the couple passed beneath a large gray banner, its bold, red lettering reading, Love on the Waves. Below the phrase, there was a colorful timeline of upcoming destinations, like a chronology in a history textbook, with cartoonish representations of the unique sights to be seen at each port of call the crews would be visiting. While waiting for the elevator, Austin looked through the flurry of smiling faces and button-up Margaritaville shirts toward the darkened corridor to their right. The left was dark as well. Hatched metal gates blocked the passage. These were, he knew, the cheapest rooms. He wondered why they were closed off. Had they not sold all the rooms? Surely if the suites were discounted, the lower rooms would be as well. But then he remembered the snatches of conversation he heard back in line, and suddenly he found himself looking around the crowd for the two women he'd overheard talking about the Baroness's maiden voyage, but they were nowhere to be seen, probably back getting their picture taken. The elevator doors opened, passengers lurched forward. Austin began to feel the subtle lilt of the ship as they stepped on, so slight it wouldn't be noticeable unless you were feeling for it, and for the first time since they'd made it through security, Marie grabbed his hand, lacing her fingers together with his. He was already forgetting the dark hallways, the cheaper rooms, because he and his wife were royalty this time around. They rode the elevator up, stopping at each level to let other cruisers off. When the doors opened on their floor, Austin and Marie Holt stepped out and passed under a second banner, this one much simpler, with only three bold words. Find each other.
Thanks for listening to this episode of The Ghost Modernist. New episodes drop every Tuesday at midnight. Please rate and review The Ghost Modernist on Apple Podcasts. Even if you don't usually listen on that platform, it helps me get this show into the headphones of more listeners. If you haven't done so already, please tell your friends and family. Let's scare them too. The music for this episode was provided by Atrium Carcheri. Please check out, support, and enjoy their music and all of the other incredible artists on the Cryo Chamber label. And remember, there are two types of people in this world, the haunters and the haunted. Which one are you?